And welcome back to another episode of On Coaching with Magnus and Marcus. I am Steve Magnus, Deputy Director of High Performance West, joined in person in Houston, Texas, with John Marcus, Director of High Performance West. John, we are back. We're giving the people what they want. And you know the reason we're back is largely thanks to our great sponsor, Health IQ. Oh my God, yes. It's awesome. It's, they're doing amazing things. And what is Health IQ? It's an insurance company. And what they do is really cool. They help health conscious people, like everyone listening to this podcast, runners, cyclists, weightlifters, you know, even if you eat healthy and have a healthy diet. People like us, they help us get lower rates on life insurance. And what they found is that individuals can save up to 33% on their life insurance. How in the heck do you do that? Well, you know, you send them some racer results, you send them a Strava account, just something to show that, hey, you're in our tribe, right? You're a healthy person who's running, lifting, cycling, all that stuff. How can you get this? Well, simple. Go to healthiq.com slash oncoaching or go to our show notes at highperformancewest.com or scienceofrunning.com and just click on the link Fill out some stuff, send some results in, and see how much they can save you. And maybe you'll get more life. Because who doesn't want more? And I want more life. Yes. And also, who doesn't want more money? I know that's the people true. want more money, and that's why we are giving the people what they want. Steve and I are giving away two $100 cash oh to the people. All you got to do is go to highperformancewest.com. There's a tab that says $100. Fill it out, just name, email, and your favorite podcast, and we're going to give you 100 bucks. And then, too, to pay it forward even more, because you guys are the reasons we do have a sponsor now, because you've been listening for three solid years, so thank you. We're going to give you an extra $100. Yes, another $100 on top of the first, but the caveat is you got to give that away. So we're creating a culture of contribution. That's really important to us at HPW. So fill out the, if you haven't already, $100 link or uh, the tab with the $100 um, form. We'll pick a winner in end of May and then we'll send you a hundred bucks and another hundred bucks. And then let us know what you do if you do win with that extra hundred bucks because that's important. We want to call it out. We want to highlight that, you know, and that's how we're all get better is through a, a culture of contribution. So thanks again, people. We're happy and we're privileged to be able to give this opportunity and give back to you guys and for allowing us to have sponsors like this. Yes, so what in the world are we talking about today? Well, we have a guest. And for you stat nerds out there, our guest has ran the exact same time for the mile as Stephen Cram did in 1985 to win uh, at the Crystal Palace. I'm speaking of none other than High Performance West elite athlete, national record holder in the one mile for the country of Mexico, our very own Daniel Herrera. Welcome. Hi there, glad to be here. Glad to join you all. Man, Steve Cram, that's a big name. Yes. So there's this fun website um, that we'll post in the show notes uh, where you can look at all the sub four minute miles ever ran, indoor, outdoor, oversized track, correct size track, all that good stuff. So just to as a point of reference, Daniel's time of 356.13, the national record for Mexico, sits as the 1,790th fastest time ever ran in the history of recorded track and field for the mile. So that's a pretty cool fact. Um, and again, that list 
has um, repeat offenders on there like Hisham El Garouge and Alan Webb. And so every mile that's ever been ran is counted as one. So when you take that in consideration, we don't know what number fastest human he is, but at least we know he's probably one of the 2,000 fastest milers of all time. Pretty phenomenal feat, um, considering my mile time was 408 and Steve unfortunately never broke four. <laughs> Close, yeah, but not quite. You know. But I did for 1,600 meters, which is all that matters. <laughs> <laughs> Saving grace. But essentially, we wanted to bring Dan on and ask him what it felt like to run a sub four minute mile. And you've done it a couple times now. So why don't you just take us away, since you're the one with the, the knowledge and we aren't. <laughs> well, I guess Steve was pretty close in those, you know. But I, I'll tell you from experience, those nine meters are where it really starts to hurt. Uh, That's my problem. I was too weak for it, man. That's too weak. Maybe you should have ran 140 miles in high school, yeah, not the yeah. 120. No, I know. Yeah. My, my problem. Yeah. My bad. That's not quite where I'm at on the mileage. But uh, <laughs> talking about the, the sub four, um, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of tradition in it and a lot of rich history in it. And I do think that for me personally, when I thought about those things, it just never really, you know, came to fruition. When I was racing, if, if I had that on my mind, uh, it became the driving force and that was a very weak driving force. And uh, the first time that I did run sub four on the track, as I did on a downhill mile. <laughs> we won't count yeah, that. Yeah, you can't count you that. Know, yeah, you, know. you can't, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, was was uh, in Boston at the Adrian Martinez Classic last year. And I would say that that day I just woke up and I just had a good feeling about about the race, about what I wanted to go there and do and execute. And it was not at all revolving running the sub four mile. I knew that if I did what I wanted to do from an execution standpoint, I would be able to run very fast and it would likely require a sub four minute mile. So let's talk about how we got you there because that's what the people want to know, right? I mean, it's you know one thing to do it, but it's another thing to talk about how you progressed that because that was your first time breaking four was that race, right? And yeah. you'd ran Adrian Martinez, you ran many miles and even 15s before that. And you showed a lot of promise in college and even your first year out, we were knocking on that door, but it never came to fruition. And, you know, as we talked about here and you alluded to, it's not so much we talked about breaking for as a thing to do, as a thing to prove your worth or your merit or the um, repute of the training, but as a byproduct of being competitive and racing at a national or budding world-class level. But let's go all the way back, right? Let's start, you know, you're a UCLA grad. You were um, there for two years after transferring from the JUCO level, coached by Forrest Braden, who himself is no slouch of a runner and also a phenomenal college coach, now at William & Mary. However, that program um, at UCLA contrasted a lot different than what we um, emphasize here at HPW. So walk us through that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, definitely the program at UCLA and under, you know, Forrest is a great guy. Uh, was very aerobically based uh, and so I would say that you know a lot of your strength um, came from this well I mean what in the distance running world you would call your strength right but and so that's where you got that mental edge that mental advantage was that you were very strong 
Um, what was like the emphasis, would you say, like day to day, month to month, or even season to season, like that Forrest would communicate to everyone on the USA um, team? Because again, wildly successful collegiate program. And, you know, uh, what do you remember from that time where it was like, all right, guys, here's what we're emphasizing in training, and this is how it's going to translate to race day? What was that message from Forrest? Yeah, I would definitely say uh, a lot of the workouts and you know, the direction of training was triggered towards being in that space of mental discomfort and pushing through it. And the way that I would remember it very vividly on a weekly basis or biweekly basis would be doing tempo runs in a, in a fairly hilly uh, course that we had uh, down there in the, in the Beverly Hills area. So we would go ahead and, and get to experience that discomfort, both physically and mentally, and push through that. Um, and I would say that that was something that we always came back to very frequently, um, whether it was cross country, indoor, or the outdoor track season. But what what are the details on that? Our people love details. Like, yeah. What would that tempo look like? Miles? How long? How fast? Yeah, yeah. All that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I guess uh, the details. It, I mean, it really varied, and I, I guess this was the the emphasis there. Uh, as you transitioned mm-hmm. and as you became older and stronger in the program, um, you would go anywhere from, I mean, maybe on the very low end for a middle distance guy, like four or five miles um, at about five, 10 to 520 mm-hmm. or so pace. Um, mind you, this was a, 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 about half of it is uphill and the other half is downhill. It's, it's a kind of a figure eight. Mm-hmm. Um, so you split between the two. Um, and then it would go, on the very high end, probably about eight miles at that at that pace, or a little bit faster. It could, you know, depending on the day. We weren't super stringent um, on having to hit that exact pace. It could kind of progress after about halfway or so into mm-hmm. the into the workout. Yeah, and you were able to offer that type of emphasis of training, you know, uh, to consistently run about what three forty two to three thirty nine for fifteen hundred, right? And you as a fifth year senior and as a junior yeah yeah and but then you know now you come up to portland you leave the sunny skies of uh, beverly hills up to the gray skies of the northwest <laughs> for a reason just and, a little change <laughs> yeah it's a little change so you know take us through you know when you showed up that first three months or even first year with you know uh, hpw things that were radically different, things we did that you never really did before or didn't have such emphasis on, and then how long it took you to uh, be confident in that type of work because that's always difficult in transition but, programs. Yeah, let's let's even go back to the start of like when you're confronted with changes in training. Yeah, right? oh, that's great. Yeah, Because yeah. like anytime you go to a program and you're like, well, I mean, you had a, a very successful college career, right? Um, some really good PRs. Like, what? What's the min- what's the mindset like when you're presented with, hey, like, here's what we're gonna do, and it's different from what's worked before. Yeah, I mean, I would say, uh, I guess to go back and, and kind of uh, reflect a bit uh, and and give a little perspective onto why I chose to react uh, a certain way or not. Um, Probably one of the most eye-opening things in my collegiate experience was running the U.S. championship. And, uh, I mean, it was 2014. It wasn't uh, a world championship year or an Olympic year. There was no team to make. Uh, I finished 14th 
and just got the doors blown off of me the last uh, 300 meters. Uh, and so I, w- I would say that that kind of, it, it made me very hungry and it made me, you know, really want to figure out what all the pieces were. And having been, you know, in that in that race and having lost in the final 300 to six or seven guys and seeing that opportunity go past me, it made me really question, well, how do I get there? Mm-hmm. And so when I was approached with sprinting, which was, the, I would say, the biggest change is sprinting. We did not sprint before. We did not emphasize the, the weightlifting, which, you know, is just, again, for, uh, I mean, it has a lot of different reasons uh, for it. But it, it is for that explosiveness, right, and that quickness um, in that sprint situation. Um, when I was approached with that, thankfully, having had that collegiate experience at the U.S. championships and losing to those guys, it made me think, okay, great. <laughs> this, is, this is how I, I need to be able to do this. If, mm-hmm. I, if I can't close a race, a tactical you know, race in a low 50-second 400-meter split, I won't be able to ever make a team. I won't be able to ever do or accomplish anything. And so I think, you know, from that first, uh, the realization that it was just a necessary thing for me to change uh, my my training so I could emphasize on the sprinting and on the end game, right, on the final lap, on the final uh, bit of that race, made it actually quite an easy transition to, to apply the new style of training that that uh jmar and hpw brought yeah that's uh that's interesting because that that shows a high degree of self-awareness right of saying of being able to almost evaluate yourself and be like all right like here's these guys have something i don't right there's a reason that i'm getting my doors blown off here in the last 300 right and to be able to, as an athlete, to sit there and be like, okay, what is the piece of the puzzle that I'm missing, right? It's not that my training's not working. It's that I don't have this maybe uh, skill set yet um, that allows me to do what these other people do. Yeah, and, and to, to kind of add to that, just because I was able to adopt this new thing, uh, I would say that gaining confidence in it was a, a completely different beast, a completely different animal. Um, so uh, I, I will say that it wasn't without its faults. So, so let's let's go through that a little bit. Like, how do you get the, how do you get that confidence and that actual buy-in from from that initial thing of saying like, oh, I think I need this, and then you get like into the rigors where it's like, uh, you know, sometimes you're like, well, do I? Do I not? Like, take us through that process. Yeah, that process uh, proved to be a really long process. <laughs> I would say probably an entire season or so worth of process. And I think the big part of that was I was kind of always waiting for this validation of uh, am I ready yet? Am I, am I ready to race to that capacity yet? Am I ready uh, when I find myself uh, at the end stage of the race, will it just come to me? Right, and and I feel like it took the entire year of of having all these. Um, you don't really having a lot of a, a lot of a lot of lows and some highs, uh, but really rediscovering how I could apply that. And I think that really kind of came uh, to a better point once I started running the road miles. And mm-hmm. I remember running that uh, Minnesota mile, and it was for the first time there was there was no emphasis on 
what the result was based on the clock. It was really just going out there and ripping it at a certain point. Mm. You just you you had to go if you were going to win. Yeah. yeah. And and the winning is everything because the road mile circuit the time is unimportant. The placing yeah. is the emphasis. Mm-hmm. And so I think taking that away and finally being able to see in a new light the race gave me that confidence. Uh, because then I was able to apply the skills that I had learned without you know, hoping for the outcome that I wanted. Yeah. yeah, that's a brilliant point, I think. I mean, speaking as someone who's on the other end of that, four minute barrier like the what, what oh, so still elusive. still in forever yeah. um, <laughs> till i get a downhill mile where i just get dropped off the face of the earth uh you know that that often what holds us back is that emphasis on time right because it, it shifts from like what most people think is a goal to a constraint Right, because we start seeing this as like, oh, like everything is based on this four minute piece or this time piece. And what happens is you start almost holding yourself back to a degree to hit that because it becomes like, where am I at at 400? Where am I at at 800? Where am I at at 1200? And like the moment you're just slightly off, you're just like, ah, crap. Like, and you just start tightening up, right? Um, or at least that's how all of my races went. Mm-hmm. So, it, and you see that whether it's a four minute mile or, you know, someone trying to qualify for Boston in the marathon, right? You're Joe Schmo trying to do that. And I think that's an important point um, is whether using road stuff or something else to just change that emphasis from that time constraint and that holding yourself back to you know, allow you to actually express what you're doing. Yeah, time's the easy objective measure. It's a way to, you know, quickly translate what you're doing to the outsider or to the person who might not be as sophisticated about how difficult racing at whatever level you're trying to compete really is. And the the reality is the emphasis on racing, right? We have this exhibitionist culture behind times. Times are a standard uh, uh, entry into a Boston Marathon into a conference meet, into a national meet, into a world meet. And there's all these minimum standards of entry. And we feel like once we then hit that time, then we are validated as someone who's in that um, uh, level of competency and repute that we so, you know, thusly seek. But it's almost like hitting the time gives you permission, but you can't hit the time until you already have given yourself permission to go after and hit the time. And the very uh, circular logic behind this that Dan expresses, once you're okay and don't worry about hitting the time, but focus on performing at your best possible capacity that day and being your the best incarnation of yourself, it's almost like the ability, it's almost like the time melts away. Because it, Dan had, you know, that first year floundered under the program at HBW. And it, it was, again, it's not his fault. It's not my fault. It's just a transition year. Transitions take time. We want to think that we're going to accelerate our ability to um, gain fluency or literacy in anything we do, whether it's being a parent, starting a business, you know, transitioning to a post-collegiate program, that the next year is going to be the best year, right? It's this overconfident bias that we have inherently as human beings. But it, he put in a solid year of sprinting, something he had done zero of, as he said here before, prior to coming 
um, to HPW. And then it started to click, it started to become uh, familiar. It started to be like, oh yeah, I know what sprinting means. I know how to translate this. I know when I feel good, I know when I don't feel good. I remember that first year he'd always be asked, you know, when am I supposed to feel fresh? When am I going to be ready? When am I going to do this? And it's like, Dan, you're running PRs in workouts. <laughs> like you're running, you know, volumes of intensity that you've never been able to do in your whole life. You are ready right now, but it's almost like you had to get away from that external validation of writing the mark to signal to everyone else that you've made it. And then in turn that then um, coming back and signaling to you that you made it and say in your own mind, I've made it. I'm doing all I can do, let's see what I can do. And that let's see what I can do attitude, I think is very critical to high performance because a lot of times we get in this has to work mode instead of this might work mode. And this might work mode allows you to experiment and discover, but this has to work mode is creating this degree of anxiety, anxiety and also urgency about getting this product delivered at a certain time a certain due date by a certain you know meet and that can mess with an athlete if you don't have strategies in place to cope with it and overcome it yeah and i think i want to touch on one thing you you did say that i that i think is very true um for myself and for probably the grand majority of of sub four minute milers is the granting yourself permission Right, because I've 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 went on to run sub four afterwards, either on a road or on a track, Um, and those times following that initial sub four, I had already given myself permission. Yes, and so they were not. uh, It it was not a thought in my mind as a goal for my race. It wasn't. Oh, I'm going to go out there and execute this plan and run sub four for the second time. Mm -hmm. No, no one has that thought let me do it for the third time right there's no (laughs) limiting factor there and i think unless you're john walker's done it like hundred and something times right yeah yeah (laughs) yeah or sue scott yeah Yeah. but i think it's important to you know put a pin in is like you know dan had ran i think 402 your uh, redshirt junior at that adrian martinez meet right and so where you broke for was a familiar space you had ran there and then you ran the uh, in 2000 16 there as a first year out as a post-collegiate athlete and then 2017 when you hop from 402 all the way down to 356 but i remember you know our discussion and dialogue about getting ready for that race and going into that race had nothing to do about being at a certain split at a certain point at, at all at any point within the, the race it was all about competitiveness closing gaps making sure you moved when these people move you were in the conversation you weren't distance all these like nuances and subtleties and these more subjective things rather than this harsh concrete be at this split by this time. And I think that's really important to put a pen in because it's the easy initial way to get caught up in those numbers because they seem very concrete and controllable. But actually, as we were discussing here today, they can put sandbags on us and they can put this like burden on us that we have to live up to this every single day. If you run sub four once, well, you better do it again. Otherwise it's a fluke. And some people, you know, freak out about that. And you astutely said, Hey, all the hard work paid off after two years. And it wasn't about the the physical work translating. It was about you looking back and saying, I'm going to give my permission to myself to now go do this, to take a risk, to try to swing and hit a home run. And it ended up yielding a lot more fruit than you could have expected. Like if someone asked you to, or me to predict before the race, oh, what's he ready to run? 
Like, I don't know, like in terms of time, I go, we know he's ready to compete because that's what we're training him for is to compete. And a lot of times we get caught up in the translation of if you run XYZ splits in a workout, that then means that you can run XYZ, you know, um, time come race day. And it's a nice narrative. It's a nice, neat one. And it, it creates this expe- expectation. But a lot of times I think it's a, it, it's a negative or it's a burdensome expectation rather than uh, an ameliorating and elevating expectation. Yeah, you know, I think that's one of the biggest uh, problems, especially on the high school or college level with the invention of the Internet and everybody's training is there. It's to say that, like, oh, like, to run 50, sub-15 in the 5K, I need to do ABC or XYZ. Mm-hmm. And what happens is, like, that shifts the emphasis, right? You start putting the value on trying to prove yourself in practice instead of trying to execute what you need to do to get better because sometimes they're different things right i can hype myself up you know every once in a while for a crazy workout and knock it out of the park right but but i can't do that repetitively over time and that changes the emphasis where if i'm trying to prove myself versus i'm trying to get better and i think you know for me it's understanding like how do we get better how do we judge that and how how do we measure that and a lot of times to me better is not just the time that the stopwatch records or the time that the day, uh, the weekly training log or i mean the miles the weekly training log records yeah let me interrupt you there actually uh, you you bring up a good point there in in what it means to get better and i'll, I'll be i'll be honest and upright with this um Actually, when I ran that sub four mile, one, uh, I could care less what the splits were during. I actually was trying to get around uh, Chad Noel, Leo Manzano. We were we were in a chase pack, and I just wanted to move around on the final lap. And it was, honestly, I mean, it could have been all thanks to, to Kyle Merber uh, indirectly. Uh, I wanted to just, I, I looked up, I saw Kyle, and I was like, go get him. Go, go get him. And I didn't get him, but I got damn well as close as i could and as a result of that i ran the sub four mile Mm. and and it was not because i was chasing the sub four mile in in all honesty i finished the race and was probably a little bit disappointed with my execution of the race where i did not want to be in a chase pack Um, i wanted to be a little bit closer to the front Uh, and so i think that there is a lot to be said of getting better not being uh a direct result of the time that you run because there that was the fastest mile that I've run but I wanted to get better and it wasn't time related it yeah was, and I think I texted you afterward and I gave you like a b minus yeah because you didn't listen to the pre-race advice which was go with the rabbit <laughs> yeah and then immediately after the race the men's miles before the women's mile we had your your teammate Eleanor Fulton in the mile what would you tell her before she like started her race I, I told her just go just go from the first step with <laughs> go with the rabbit and, and well, she did she and she went yes and she almost broke 430 for the mile and got second you know because it was just following that execution. And that was my emphasis to you both in that, going into that race. Go with the rabbit, go with the rabbit. I think I sent you guys a text message of like, basically copy and paste, go with the rabbit 30 times. So you could not, 
you know, mess up what the intention was and what my previous counsel was. And, you know, that was, and you were frustrated as well. I said, well, I remember talking to him afterwards and uh, he was just like, well, yeah, you know, I'm kind of disappointed because you're right. You know, I should have gone with the rabbit. I didn't go with her. I want to get these guys. And I was like, yeah, but you know, it's a nice consolation when you're disappointed and you said national record. Yeah. <laughs> but at no point was it about the splits and the numbers because what that was though, it was a product of actually almost what a year and a half of a new different type of program under transitioning into it, having confidence in it, getting permission in yourself, and then just showing up ready to do the best you could do on race day. That took, you know, about 18 months to transition into because the emphasis before, as is typical in the scholastic um, world, is time. You have to hit this time to get to conference, you have to hit this time to get to regionals, you have to hit this time or place to get out of regionals and nationals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in order to strangle that um, impulse, which is you know so beaten into the collegiate athlete and the scholastic athlete, takes a lot longer than we think. It's not just like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna all of a sudden just completely forget this day one of a new program. Yeah, no, and you, you mentioned it takes a lot of time. It also took a lot of races, a, a lot of races. I mean, I think last year probably ran upwards of 30 races. I don't you, you know, got between 20, race. 29 starting lines. Man, you yeah. old school. Yes. He is just like Steve Crane. That's what I'm saying. Yes. He did pace a couple. A handful of those were pace, pace efforts. But you, you start at 29 lines. That's impressive for six months. With no injury, no listlessness, no overtraining, no burnout. You know, I mean, that's, that's yeah, exciting. Yeah, so on a, on a selfish uh, standpoint, how in the world do you do that? Right? No, and, 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 and I ask this for a couple of reasons. It's because you're sitting here, you know, you look at, you look at, um, you look at the collegiate or the, the high school setting, right? And, and it is race after race after race after race after race. And the reaction of college coaches so far has been to be like, Oh well, you know what? We're we're just gonna we're just gonna you know pick the Stanford and pick the pin, pick the Mount Sac or in cross country you're like, oh we're only going to run pre nationals and uh, conference and nationals like not even pre nationals or not even conference or sorry regionals for a lot of athletes right, right? right. they'll hold them out because it's like oh no we can't we can't race that we need much. to quote unquote fresh you need to refresh so the emphasis has shifted all the way for, to fresh from the days of you know Steve Scott and all those guys who raced a, a billion times right so how how do you guys do it how do, how do you put it in where physically and mentally and emotionally right you're able to hand handle standing on that starting line that much so i'll go first and give the quick physical sure. preparation breakdown for it so it, it really came down to two things looking at dan's training where he'd come from he had a history of lower leg uh injuries that would flare up achilles or calf over time what that signaled to me was a lack of just global tissue health and a lack of like um appropriate recruitment patterning and how he was running and when he was running fast i remember he said oh gmr i can't do hills I can't run fast. Like he had all these limit, self-limiting factors that was just because of lack of, you know, integrity of how he moved structurally and also the tissue health globally. So immediately put him on a course of a healthy diet of um, lifting. And one of my favorite lifts that he loves so much is what we call beast mode. <laughs> Named after Marshawn Lynch. Like, appropriately, just, called <laughs> appropriately called beast mode. And essentially what this is is a series of squats 
um, weighted front squats with a free weight um, and integrate into it overhead presses. So it'll be squat, 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 and then two times squat to overhead press, squat, 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 just a very holistic, difficult movement pattern under load that also not only tax structurally um, the tissues and tendons and ligaments and joints, but also somewhat metabolically. And mentally. And, and mentally a lot. <laughs> and he see Beast Mode on the, like, uh, uh, on the, the program, he'd be like, whew, all right. Like, it's like he had to get up like he was doing a prize fight or something, man. It was <laughs> <laughs> but it only lasted for about a year. And now Beast Mode's like kind of uh, peppered away in the program because as he got healthier and stronger, we had to shift to a different emphasis. Because I always live by the cardinal rule of what got you here won't necessarily get you there. And so you have to be able to evolve as an athlete and as a coach. And what's the biggest um, uh, stimulus bang for your buck or the minimum required doses to get them healthy? Because the emphasis was we need to up his speed reserve. And speed reserve is this concept um, that is if you get faster at max velocity over a very short period or a very short duration, 30 meters, 60 meters or 80 meters, something of that regard, it influences how fast um, you can be all the way up to like 10,000 meters. And it increases the um, impulse and the uh, coordination as well as the um, long-term duration of muscle contractibility at fast clips. And so what that means is we got to sprint. You have to be able to sprint. So there'd be these acceleration ladders that happen starting in November, starting at 80 meters, or uh, excuse me, starting at like uh, 150 meters or 60 meters and cutting down to 80, 60 meters. Or we'd go up the ladder starting at 60 meters and going up to 200 meters. Sometimes you do one set, sometimes you do two sets. Also part of our program is these stairs and hills complexes where we're doing quick stairs, we're touching every step, power stairs for just 20 seconds, as quick as you can. And then, then we have a nice crushed gravel hill that we can uh, get the athletes to, especially the milers, and we can just fly up this 175 meter hill. So all this is infusing him with this capacity to um, uh, increase his speed reserve. And what that means is we want to be able to sprint faster and longer over the course of a season and over course season two season. I remember what changed my mind uh, when I knew Dan was ready to do something very special. It was actually the day after the Occidental High Performance Meet or the USATF Distance Classic. We He raced the 15. Um, you know, it didn't go to his expectation. He was kind of pouty about it. I said, man, let's just go back to UCLA and let's just do an all-out speed endurance workout. And we did, um, what we do, six times 250, right? I think it might have been. I, I think it was, I think we ended up doing about five by 250 and then one And then one like hot 300. So, yeah. You yeah, call it hot. Yeah. I call it painful. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like, you know, he was running the 250s at like 30 seconds. I mean, that is moving. Yeah, we're taking, you know, six minutes recovery. But still, you're able to do five times 250 the day after a 1500, a high level 1500 meter race at 30 seconds. And then just just give everything he had for a final 300 in his most fatigued state and still run, you know, like I forget what it was, 36 or 37, something like that. And, and in the last 50 was difficult. You were decelerating, but you were able to stay coordinated and focused and get it done. When he did that, I was like, my mind was changed. I'm like, man, this, this guy is red T to roll. It's just a matter of races. It's just a matter of permission. It's just a matter of when he gives himself the... Um, green light to do it. And that, I think, was what matters most. But to get to that workout, to get to that point, was 18 months of very um, deliberate, very focused, and year-round sprinting and preparing to sprint through 
uh, different types of modalities or ancillary work that included weights as well as plyometrics, skills and drills, just basic good athletic fundamentals, right? And it was just a healthy dose. It was kind of bonder check method. We didn't really, at any time of the year, um, lessen the stimulus or taper the stimulus. We just altered it and we altered the emphasis or we altered the duration, but it was always in there, always in there. It's kind of like your vegetables. Your vegetables are always in there every meal at dinner and lunch. And maybe if you're really good at breakfast, you know, but it keeps you nourished, it keeps you healthy, it keeps you going. And so to me, those are the biggest wins for Dan. And then from there, other things got better. Um, you know, his ability to do tempo work or broken threshold work improved. His ability to do critical speed work or s- specific stamina type work, 5K working down, mile pace working down, it got better. He could do it faster. He would recover quicker from set to set or rep to rep. And he also recover from quicker from workout to workout and absorb the stimulus and execute it m- much more swiftly, much more crisply with not as much breakdown or um, fatigue post-workout or need for repair post-workout. And so the confluence of those things all combined from a physical capacity standpoint that shows he was, you know, ascending to the next plat- uh, level, ascending to, you know, leveling up to and elevating his competency there. That doesn't even begin to unpack the uh, mental and emotional training that we've been through for like two years. So I'll let you kind of talk to that a little bit because that's just as big and just as important, I think, as what we've done physically. Yeah, no, definitely. I think uh, it is is 100% as important as a physical and uh, without it, you you can't fully grow and you you can't uh, improve in the direction that you want to uh, in athletics. And so I would say that definitely, um, you know, Targeting back to the original uh, question that we had asked here about how we were able to accomplish this for for six months and, and race continually, uh, get those twenty nine races or paces in, um, I, and not really quote periodize as 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 we would say, uh, just have like you said that healthy staple healthy diet of vegetables, uh, which included a lot of racing. Uh, was really from a mental standpoint to get over the fact that you could only do this so long and to get over the fact that every time you had to be on because I think that that is uh that to me became became uh, sort of a myth right if, if you race if you race from one point to the next uh just you know as a child you can do that every day you could do that all the time and there, there doesn't need to be this myth about, oh, but I need to be at my best to, to do what? To, to run the fastest time? Like that's, that's not the uh, most important thing that, that should control your, your race um, plan or race direction or what you're training for and why you're training. It's kind uh, of moving it from, uh, you know, as a child's play. And then you, the, in college, it's serious. This is serious, guys. We got the champion. It's serious. And then we almost moved it to serious play, where you're having fun, but you took it serious, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I would definitely say that that was the direction that it came, and that sheltered an environment of learning, right? And so I was able to approach these races uh, by taking out this myth that I couldn't race, that I shouldn't race, uh, in a more learning aspect, right? And I was like, okay, well, what did I learn about my execution here? What did I learn about how I want to, uh, you know, go about this racing style 
whether it be on the road or the track. And so I think that that was something that changed drastically and has to change drastically for you to be able to drift away from that is taking out that self-limiting barrier of I can't do this from a mental standpoint because I will burn out, because I will fatigue, because I will. And honestly, uh, I left those things to other people. I had I had other people <laughs> always tell me, you again, you're running the road mile again. Didn't you just run a road mile like three days ago? And now you're back at the track at Portland running an 800 and 15 and pacing a 1500. Yeah. Yeah, I am. Yeah. And, and it was because they had those limitations. And I think because the athlete has those limitations and while the athlete and the coach and the system have those limitations and have that mental, um, you know, view of over racing as a as a problem it will be a problem but but mm-hmm. I, I will say generally uh it, if you can take that away and and ultimately is what you should do is is try and take it away and is what we're we're doing you allow yourself the opportunity to grow more and to spend more time in that place of growing well i think the key thing that you said there is get over the fact that every time you need to be on yeah. right because being on like signifies this huge like emotional commitment right yeah and if you don't have to have that every time if you know that like hey like i whatever i am on the starting line like i'm gonna execute right and whatever is there is there right then you're getting away from that again that kind of emotional fatigue that i think a lot of people get in trouble with and the fact that hey when I race, I need it to be perfect. And if I need it to be perfect, then I need every one of these ducks to line up in a row. And that's where people go wrong, mm-hmm. right? It's almost like that acceptance. You know, whenever I've had like really good athletes, uh, take Sarah Hall, for instance, who did some crazy stuff in terms of racing all the time. Like it was, they were able to do that because they just kind of had the same mindset that you did. It's like, all right, it's another race and I'm going to execute this in the way that I need to execute it. And if it's there, it's there. If it's, you know, if, if it's not a PR race or the best execution, like, oh, well, like on to the next one. Yeah. This idea that race day has to be magical, I think is a myth, right? You don't need to all of a sudden metamorphosize into this role or this you know, godlike figure who has all these amazing powers and it's only that you have those powers on race day, it should, you should be the same. Practice in racing, the same. The same person, you can do these things in practice, you can do these things in race day. I mean, we, what, we, we do workouts three, two to three times a yeah. week and yet we say, oh, we can't race every week because racing is so much more difficult than your workouts. And if that's the case, you really need to um, check the difficulty or perceived difficulty of your workout relative to the race you're preparing for. Well, well, there's also, I think it comes from a place of insecurity because you sit there and you think like, oh, I need something magic to happen to hit hit whatever my expectations are. And if if that's what you think you need, then then maybe your expectations are too high or like you don't have the confidence and know-how to understand that like I am able to do this. Right. And you got to own it. Like you got to be able to own your ability and own the qualities that you're training for. And whether you're in 20 mile per hour winds and 50 degree weather or whether you're in 
95 degree weather and you know heat and humidity it's a matter of how are you judging the success or judging the process or judging what you're doing are you judging it you know in relation to the split on the watch or are you judging it into did i give my best effort did i give the maximum or what was asked of me or what i asked of myself today it's that integrity issue again right and i think we get caught up when erroneously when we think about time as a key ingredient to our um, integrity about, well, I'm going to say I'm going to run this race at this speed. And if I don't hit these splits in route to this race, if I don't run five minute miles for a marathon, if I don't run six minute mile pace for a half marathon, then all of a sudden it's like I've lost my powers and I'm not good anymore. Well, you have to look at, you know, in the broader context of what you're doing, because if you're time trialing, do it at practice. Do it at practice and like wait until the conditions are perfect, but don't show up to a race to time trial. I mean, we, I think in a lot of ways we cheapen the racing experience when we make time the sole emphasis of it. And it's difficult because, you know, Steve, you just, you slipped and said it right there too. When Sarah Hall does these crazy things and races with high frequency or Daniel, this is crazy. It's high frequency. It's too high. No, it's just outside the, the current culture. And if we can do anything and go back and shift our mindset that these are, um, we're trained to have these physical capacities that are, are permanent throughout the course of a season that we're endowed with. That's why we're training so hard. It's not like all of a sudden I wake up and I forget how to speak English, you know, because I was speaking English every day, but now I have to go give a presentation in front of an audience and I got to speak English. And I, oh, I'm being so nervous. I have to speak magic English. No, I just use the same tonage, verbiage, and semantics I've been using all along. Now, all of a sudden, this platform just has me communicating to a lot of people. Well, if you go back and you trace where this kind of came from, right? You look at you look at guys in the 50s, 60s. I mean, Zatopek raced all the time, even into the set. Clark, right? Yeah, I mean, 70s. Um, guys just raced, right? They they raced all the time, and then you had people in the you know, 70s with Lossie Viren and others who came about and said, oh, I'm only going to show up at, like, the Olympic Games, essentially. Right. And that and that's all that mattered. And then that starts changing the mindset, mm-hmm. right? And then the other thing that also occurred at the professional level is people started to race less because they were on the juice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, you, it's the elephant yeah. in the room. It's, it's the elephant in the room, yeah. right? You yeah. race less because you know, okay, well, you know, if I race too much, I'm going to get caught. And, you or know, you could choose or, the races where there weren't any doping controls yes right and then you just got yourself exactly. ready for but but you know in those days pre that like the expectations were you know frank shorter i'm gonna run the olympic 10k and then i'm gonna come back and and win the marathon yeah right or zatapec i'm gonna win all three because i feel like it yeah. you know um but those were that or even you know later bill rogers like running all those marathons um yeah. every year like those were kind of the norms like we hadn't gotten into this mindset yet and you know daniel's race uh race kind of experience shows that it's you know maybe it is a norm to race all the time or you look at that japanese marathoner who races all the time and all of them are quality essentially Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um that's all right for him so maybe we've just shifted this norm too far to one side and said like oh no 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 to run our best, you pick three or four, and that's because periodization tells us we have to peak at this time. Um, but maybe that's just a human construct that we kind of made up. Yeah, I would say that it's definitely, you know, could be part of the underlying theme of, of 
having too much ego about it, mm-hmm. right? You put you put it on this pedestal, like I, oh, I, I'm only good, so I'll, I'll show up to just this, right? Yeah. And and when I show up, like I I can't fail at this. Versus you know in the in the 70s, uh, I mean I guess you could highlight the lack of social media and the lack of that information that you have failed at it gave you that permission to race over and over and over and over and over because you were you knew that you were cultivating a product for this later time for the end of the season for the olympics for the qualification to whatever you know games that you 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 were trying to participate at but now if you have one bad race everyone sees it well, Ron Clark famously set the 10K world record. I think he was the first man to break 28, right? And then three days later, he lost a, a, like an all-comers 800. Yeah. Three days later, after setting the world record, and it wasn't like Ron Clark's like, oh my God, I'm not good anymore. He yeah, just yeah. was like, the purpose of training is to race. That's the purpose of the busy. And if we, I'd be, it, you know, we're at a deficit if we think that the purpose of you know, racing is to do the most training beforehand that we possibly can and then race. And, I, you know, again, there's a lot of factors that play, but more culturally, I think, especially with the miler, you know, remember the number of races that a John Walker or, um, you know, even a, a Steve Scott ran. I mean, it's an ungodly amount of racing is racing and racing and racing and racing and racing and racing. But that's the fun. Yeah. You know, training is only to me, training is only a tool that we use as a sharpening stone for the races or to, you know, once we have learnings from a race about, you know, lackings or failures or big red, you know, big areas of uh, execution that need to be uh, honed a little bit and familiarized. Yeah, we can do that in training and we can try different things. We can fail there. But eventually you have to publish. You have to bring your product to market. You have to be able to show up and say, this is what I got. And then just continue to own that and own that and own that. And that's what I love about athletes is the more people show up and say, this is what I got, the more you actually learn if you have a growth mindset. But you're right. If you have an ego about you where you say, I always have to be mono good. I have to always be, I have to be this person who runs this time. Otherwise, people will think lesser of me. Otherwise, people won't sign me or I will lose a contract. Look at the variance with people with Alan Webb. Look at the variance of even Aspel Kiprop. These are some people who have run the most crazy, amazing, you know, nasty times, championships, you know, uh, results we can remember in the mile. But they've also laid some big, fat, smelly yes. eggs yeah. in, in the peak of their career. I remember, yeah. remember Alan laid the stinkiest egg in the pre-two mile in 2007, yeah. right? He ran 352 to win uh, you know, a New York Diamond League or what have you. Comes back the week later, just gets rolled over in you know, not even the conversation that pre-two mile. And then all of a sudden from there, on fire, mm-hmm. right? And we forget like you can have some – you can get blown out. Right, yeah. you can get blown out. The Golden State Warriors, Chicago Bulls in the mid '90s, they got blown out here and there, but it was here and there. Well, yeah, and I think what's happened is in the modern internet world, as we've transitioned into that, there's this expectation that you're always on, right? Yeah, and it almost came about in like the '90s when El Garouge was always on. Like there was no bad El Garouge race, right? But you go through some of these other race results of um, when people were human. Um, <laughs> and you see some like god awful races, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. And and it wasn't like, oh man, like I just dropped a bomb. Like now I'm going to be out of this meet, or my contract's going to be cut, or my fans aren't going to think I was good. Like it was just like, all right, race, move on. Like next one, let's go. And I think we've set ourselves up for failures for expecting that like we're going to be on all the time. Mm-hmm. And if you look at other sports, like a lot of times they don't have that expectations, right? People go through slumps in baseball, yeah. right? And where are the best player in baseball will go, you know, 0 for 5 in a game, right? And go and do and, like and four do, games in a row. It, yeah. yeah and, or weeks in a row. Exactly. Yeah. And you look at Kobe and LeBron and they'll have some horrible shooting games. But in track, like what we've come to is, oh, you know, if, uh, if you know, Alan Webb has a clunker, then it's like, oh, his season's done. Like, he goes home devastated. Yes, yeah. devastated. <laughs> and I think we're doing ourselves and our, our, you know, our fans, everybody a disservice when we put, you know, if they have a rough race, is oh, this person is now a failure. Well, it's this idea of constant versus consistent. So yeah. people can look at it one or two things. Your most recent result can, you know, be disguised as now you're constantly just that bad or you're constantly just that good. And so I'm going to look on this piece of paper and judge you as a pundit, you know, whether informed or uninformed pundit or misinformed pundit as constantly that. But we know that people are consistent or inconsistent. There's variance, right? You can have someone like Leo Manzano who throughout the course of a season, you know, even after he won the silver medal, right, in 2012, he'd come back and he'd just be like, uh-oh, it's not going well for Leo. Uh-oh, this season might be. And then all of a sudden, come championship time of year, Leo Manzano shows up, makes the team, and then, you know, gets deep into the world championships. Or even like Nick Willis last year, right, like at that Minnesota mile. Yeah. You, you know, Nick was coming back from an injury. And he got beat, beat soundly by a lot of people. But who was at the starting line of the World Championships at the final? Nick Willis, because he's an old season pro who I have a lot of respect for. I mean, he's mine and Steve's age, and he's still doing it at a high level. He just knows how to get ready, and he knows what he's about, and he knows how long his process takes. And he doesn't get insecure about one or two race results. Those race results that are um, below his level of uh, repute and below his you know his fans levels expectation they're actually learning moments they're actually opportunities for him to be okay i gotta go back to training work on this okay i gotta emphasize this in the next race and that's what the pros do so the the manzano um is one of my favorite examples of this because he's the modern guy (laughs) doesn't so this is i just pulled up his 2012 year right Right. second at the limp again so if you go through some of these results, you're just like, all right. In February, 357.9 indoor mile, eighth place, right? In July, July 14th, his tune-up for the Olympic Games at the Crystal Palace, he was 11th in the mile around four, four flat point seven. I remember that, yeah. I right? remember watching that. And you're, you're just sitting there like, even his 1500s, right? Oxy, 336 gets fourth. Uh, Pre-classic, 337.8. Um you know, doesn't have his place in here because it's probably mild. But you you look at some of these meets and it's just like, man, like you it's you're not, not sensational. Yeah, you're it's not, not you're not ready to get second in the world and be you know second fastest person on the on the planet. But he he did it right. He didn't sit there and be like, oh man, I just ran three thirty seven and I need to be in three twenty nine shape to get things done. Oh, there's the results. He was 12th place at the pre-classic. Right. And yet, you know, when the cards are thrown on the table and the race is run, 
walks away with the silver silver medal from the Olympic Games. And it's a magnitude of correctness versus frequency of correctness thing because he, you know, yes, you should have a target race. You should be working towards this is really really going to put all my chips and effort and energy. And for most um, professional competitors, it's some sort of championship, right? Everyone who starts up the NFL or NBA season wants to be playing at the end in the championships. Same deal here in racing, but getting there is not the most linear and straightforward path. And I think that's, you know, even Dan's development demonstrates that. Because even after he ran 356 in the mile, you went over to, like, Ireland, right? Yeah. And you, you ran, like, 4.04? Like four? I mean, I can't yeah. remember. Yeah, we did we, we did one race where we ran uh, about, about that. It, it was a little windy. And then we came back. And the funny thing about it is, is that you have a lot of people running the same races and you see the same guys over and over at these things. Um, I mean, occasionally it mixes up, but I think that that leads you to a good opportunity to grow and execute your plan because like the, the people that you're racing are very unimportant to what you're trying to get to. And what you're trying to get to is about crafting your execution, your confidence, all your abilities, all the things that you can control. And so I think by being able to consistently race, especially on that pro circuit, it, even if it's the same guys, it kind of allows you to really see how you're growing, how your execution is working, and, and continue to refine that, right? And I think that the best people do that very well. Like you brought up Nick Willis. Um, and, and at Medronic, he, last year, he had a very bad race there. Mm-hmm. And then I saw him again at Falmouth. And who held me off with 250 to go as I tried to get around? Nick Willis. Yeah. And, and so there you go. You know, it, because, and that, that came a, a week, I believe, um, after he had come back from, um, was it from the world champs? Right. And so, you know, here is this great example of someone and, you know, amongst various others who knew their destination of where they wanted to get to. They clearly established that. And like, we had alluded to earlier in not having to always be on when they weren't on, it wasn't a failure on their part. It was an opportunity to grow and see, okay, well I, I, I didn't come here and race up to my potential. Why, what, what can I work on? And then how do I come back again and see what, what has grown and what has changed and continue to do that up until the point where it's, you know, your goal race of the year or your, you know, highlight of the of the season so this is a very specific example for you last season bouncing back so you go to ireland you run letter kenny and i pulled up the stats here you run 402 for eighth place there you know a month earlier and this is early july a month earlier you ran 356 and then five days later on july 12th you go back to the dublin games or dublin morton games and then you run 356 again for fourth place so what happened there take us through the you know you know being able to rebound from laying a little bit of an egg, in your opinion, not being that competitive, maybe being a little too obsessed about whatever it was, yeah. you know, I don't know, to then being able to run essentially your, your second fastest or equivalent of your, um, you know, national record in the mile again five days later. What happened? Yeah, I mean, I think at Letterkenny, uh, and this is why the, the time placing was irrelevant, and so I'll speak more to the execution of it. Um, there was, it was quite windy at Letterkenny, so... so um, you know, there, there is that aspect, but the placing on there was, was poor and the execution of the race was poor. And the reason I say that um, was because there was sort of an expectation 
that I brought into that race of trying to, uh, you know, run very well in a very, um, like pace, paced out way, mm-hmm. you know, and it, and it really took away from what I wanted to accomplish and what I actually, you know, was hopeful to do would, was to execute my race plan and then the good things would come. Right. And, and I, I lost sight of that there and you see all the fluctuation, right. And it is, it's, it speaks to before that, that confidence and gaining that confidence, um, in your system and yourself takes a long time. Mm. And, and it fluctuates a lot. <laughs> even from, and, yeah. and eventually you try to mitigate those fluctuations, I think, is, is, is the trajectory and the growth that most athletes have. You know, is they, they try to minimize those. Yeah. And, and, so how did you rebound from Larry Kenny, the disappointing result, the disappointing execution, to then a significantly better result and better execution five days later? A lot of frustration, and, I, and, and I, to be really honest, I love it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, use it. Yeah, it's good fuel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, if it works, it works. And I, and I think um, for me, there was there was a lot of frustration there, um, in that I I wasn't um, I wasn't fully confident. I don't know that I would say in myself, but in in my ability to do what I wanted to do. I guess I guess that I would say in myself, and and so. We go back to that giving permission, right? I didn't give myself permission to be a driving force in that race in the late stages. At Letterkenny, sure, I was up in the front, and sure, I kept it honest. But when it when push came to shove and it was time to win the race, yeah. I opted not to win the race. Mm-hmm. And at the Morden Games, when when push came to shove, I was like, let's go. I've, I've, five days ago, I experienced the other side of this. Right. We're, we're not doing that this time. <laughs> I, I don't care. And, and that's why the placing, yeah. um, you know, I guess it matters more, but it doesn't, right? I could have, at, at the Morden Games, I would have been happy had I made the same move or even bolder, I guess. I don't know. Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Uh, I, I, I would have been happier or just as happy if I had made that move and finished further back in the placing, but giving myself permission from 300 out to really vie for that win mm-hmm. and really go for and really get lost in that experience of going for that win in that execution, in that from 150, we're going around this bend and we've, we've practiced this. It, it, it was so automatic and it was so, I mean, there was just so much immersion there in that moment. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that it stemmed from that frustration and that conscious decision to not do this again. Mm-hmm. And it was also, too, from afar and then, you know, debriefing once you returned from Ireland, because I didn't go on the trip with you there. It seemed to me that you were you're refining your competitive signature. And as that's important, too. So you have the physical elements in place, but also, too, the athlete has to have what they deem their competitive signature. And, you know, Danny Mackey spoke to this in a couple podcasts ago where the difference between a blue belt and a black belt is just they have better execution, swifter, more automatic execution of what is their strength, of what they're really, really, really good at. And most pros and most people at the highest level of craft really hone their best asset or their best elements and just know how to do it much more fluently than the beginner or even lesser belts on the degree. And as an athlete, your competitive signature is a very important thing to find. It takes sometimes a little bit uh, of, of racing or failure or, as you see this, a little bit of seesawing to understand what it is and where it is. I equate it to how they say in singing, um, you need to find your voice. 
Yeah. And this is the same deal here. You need to find your competitive signature because you can do all this work, right? And there's this air of entitlement that you are then um, having um, the the fruits of your labor will just naturally come to fruition. Like you're, we're seduced into thinking that if you put in the work, you automatically get the result. And that's not the case. Yeah. Remember, the labor, you know, is the fruit. And then the results just naturally precipitate. And sometimes they don't. Sometimes the harvest yields a lot. Sometimes it doesn't. It doesn't discredit the work you did up until that point. It's just a matter of where the ingredients within you and without without you, beyond your control, correct on that day. Yeah, and I think it's it's a very interesting point you bring up there with the, having your own signature, right? Because you can view it from the mindset of once I get good enough, I will create my signature. Or you can create your signature <laughs> first, right? Yes. And, and, I, and I, I think that it's, it's a really good point to bring up because when you create your signature, again, I mean, we go back to the central idea and it's because it is quite simple. You give yourself that permission yep. to, to use your signature, right? To, yep. to get after it. And, and if you ask anybody on the road circuit, like, I've got a signature on the road circuit yeah. and I use it, you know, and it's, it's to go early. Right, we we go before the comfortable moves are made. Go with the uncomfortable move, and sometimes I don't. <laughs> so, and, and, and you're still refining it, though. Yeah, and that's yeah. okay. You know, and it's 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 okay because that's the evolution of an athlete. Is you're always working on your game. Steph yeah. Curry's always working on his game. Tiger Woods, LeBron James, Serena Williams, they're always working on the game because it's the infinite game we're playing, not the finite game. The finite game is just moment to moment, race to race. What was the result? But the infinite game is to keep playing the game, yeah. so that you can keep playing and keep playing and keep playing for five years, ten years. Etc. And that is where there's refinement and this uh, capacity to level, continue to find different ways to level up, elevate limiting factors into dominant qualities is where the difference between long, steady pros like a Nick Willis or your Mayfly pros who only last a year or two out of college and then don't get the result, don't get the opportunities anymore, and just, you know, toil and frustration and leave the sport, you know, in my opinion, sometimes a little too early. Well, well, I think that movement signature is important because like what you've just described is being an active component in a race, right? Versus a passive component. Mm -hmm. And way too often people think like, oh, I'm just going to be this passive player until I earn my right to be there, right? And and then you're just in a waiting game because you're saying like, oh, like I'll I'll start... playing a part once I'm in position to do so, but I'm not there yet. And if you continually have that mindset, then you're never going to get there. But if you say, hey, I'm going to take an active component in this race, then like you almost kind of force your way into it, right? And you take ownership and you have autonomy to it. And you're not, you know, leaving the race to be dictated by someone else. And Mm -hmm. I think that is one of the keys when you look at especially college athletes transitioning to the pros, right? right. Is that the almost uh, default setting is to be like, oh man, that's, you know, that's Nick Willis or Leo Manzano or whoever it is. And you default to them. And when you do that, like you've settled yourself back into this position um, where you're not actually taking part in the race. And you look at some of the pros today on the middle distance circuit, you know, even on the women's side, you, we have this con- you know false concept that they were always good. Brenda Martinez was always good. Kate Grace was always good. Good as in national class competitor, making Olympic and world teams, vying for medals and finals. That's the when I say good, that's what I mean here. 
not the case at all. Yeah. Their first couple of years out of college, they floundered. Their first couple of years out of college, they bounced around without a contract, you know, kind of lived on the cheap, tried to find out who what their competitive signature was and what they brought to the table. Their marks were not impressive. Their marks were still just, you know, competitive for a collegiate athlete, let alone a world, you know, a world-class athlete. They weren't even in the ballpark. But because they stayed the course, because they played the infinite game, because they tried different elements, switched coaches, switched, um, you know, sponsors or whatever es- ex- um, ex- external assistance they need to help cultivate their internal path, they got better. And now they become these people that we laurel and we look to and say, they're some of the best middle distance talents we got in America or North America. But it wasn't always the case. And I see that a lot with athletes that I've coached in high school, college, and now even professionally. And it wasn't until recently I started to ask specifically the question, what do you need to do to give yourself permission to compete at the level you want? What is it? And it's a, it's a very clear, and when the athlete says, I don't know, is well, no, you need to know because we, you cannot get to the competitive sphere you want until first you grant yourself the permission. I can't grant you the permission. Your sponsor can't grant you the permission. This race director can't grant you. Your parents, etc. You first. And when you tell me what it is that you need to do to grant yourself that permission, then we'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> and then it'll come about. And to, to speak to that, I mean, it, to, to give another example of someone on that journey that has not yet, you know, made what people would say uh you know a super successful uh and having a a lot of these accomplishments and accolades such as you know having been at olympic final or anything like that myself personally i would say that when, when when you talk about you know giving yourself permission to do these things and what you have to do in order to cultivate that um you know environment of learning and allow yourself to do that for me personally, there was a point where I did I myself did not give myself permission to do that. I remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sure you remember <laughs> very well. And to combat that, you know, for us, we did a lot of pacing things, um, and that finally gave me that permission to see, oh, I can be up here. And the and the more I did that, the more I granted myself the permission. The more I shots I took in races to try and win. The more road miles where I you know just went and and blew up, but was almost there, but not quite. It gave me almost a sense of validation. But I mean, I want to be careful with my word choice there because I, I I don't necessarily you you don't want to seek that, but you, you uh, the validation you don't need the validation. You, you already have that. You, right. What, you know. Well, and, the question I ask sometimes as well, it's a little bit more infrequent. What does it look like when you've changed your mind? What does it look like when you've changed your mind to the outside observer? What is it going to look like to yourself? Because when you change your mind, and that's what we are in as athletes and coaches, we're fundamentally in the change business. Change is an enhancement. Change is improvement. Change is in best. And we, you know, applaud the, the best effort. We applaud the personal best. We applaud, hey, did you get faster or more competitive this year versus last year? That's the things we champion in this culture. So it fundamentally changes the name of the game. But what does it look like? And if we can't be very precise and concise about that, then all of a sudden 
we're you know operating in a fog. We're doing all this work. We're doing all these reps, sets, volumes, miles, you know, things in the gym, different ancillary work, jumping, plyo, racing, but yet we're just kind of running around, you know, haphazardly in a fog. And it's when we lift the fog and we decide on the destination, where what is the place I want to go? Not because I want to get things and you know hoard more tangible accolades or accomplishments, but because I want to experience. Yeah. And that's a very deep shift, and but yet subtle shift, but potent shift. And you've been one of the most apt pupils to digest that and say, huh, I've done all this superficial stuff that you're supposed to do, these things from a work capacity standpoint, but that didn't automatically translate or automatically entitle me to just walk around the track and yeah. run a 355 or, or 3515. You can't walk around the track. You can't stroll to your goal. You must be, you know, very, like, kind of very tuned in, as you said, immersed and focused on that destination because the destination creates the avenue to get there. I think that is a brilliant lesson to end on. So we've been through uh, 70 minutes of fun talking and meandering through here. Um, really appreciate our guest um, Daniel, giving us some insight and dropping a lot of knowledge there. I'm glad to um, be here. Glad to be here. It's uh, no, it's a lot of good stuff. So hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Um, Daniel, anywhere we can uh, hit you up on social media or anything uh, to hit, you know, for our fans to follow. Yeah, you. yeah. Um, I mean, on Instagram at Corre Daniel, which is uh, C O R R E Daniel. It's Run Daniel. For, for you non-Spanish speakers out oh, there. Look at that. We'll put it in the show notes for those uh, who want to click on it. And um, once again, check out our sponsor, Health IQ. So in the show notes, uh, healthiq.com slash oncoaching. Um, go to HPW as well and look for the $100. So Yeah, we'll be doing it until about mid-May. We yep. keep extending it every podcast just because I want to give as many people an opportunity to win some cold hard cash because who doesn't need more cold hard cash? Um, but All of us. Yes. But the end of May, especially now it's tax season, you know, hopefully you're getting a little uh, uh, return from the government. But if you're having to pay out of pocket, this might help ease that burden. So sign up. And then two, think critically about what you would do with free $100 to give away. How would you impact change? How would you make a contribution in your community? It can be anything you want. It can be a donation. It doesn't have to be running or athletic related. It's just give it to someone or some outfit that could really use it and benefit from it. And that's good enough for us. So again, this will be open until about mid-May. And then we'll have the uh, winners that we pick at random announced by the end of May. And then the checks will be sent. 